3: Welcome to Political Theater, episode 200. When we started this podcast at CQ Roll Call in early 2018, I can't recall how long I thought it might last. But regardless, here we are at 200. Along the way, we've spoken to politicians, filmmakers, lobbyists, other journalists, historians, and anyone else who's interested in how politics and our broader culture interact. That all-purpose meme, how it started, How it's going, that's a good way to frame our reflections now that we no longer have the excuse that we're simply too young to make better decisions. How did it start? Well, on January 10th, 2018, I went into a not at all soundproofed room with my first guest, Brandon Weatherby, uh, to talk about Donald Trump and how the president at the time entering his second year in office was changing the political culture of Washington, the White House, Capitol Hill, and more. Uh, it's about as prophetic a blueprint from much of what we observed over the next few years, as well as how we approached this podcast, and it was all I really could have hoped for in a first episode. Joining me today is Brandon Weatherby. He's the managing editor of Brightest Young Things. It's an arts and culture website, and it's right down the street from
4: us at Roll Call. Brandon, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I also might mention that Brandon uh, is is also the co-author of a book about Donald Trump
3: and Donald Trump's uh, connections and long history with professional wrestling. That is correct. I actually think this gives Brandon a a relatively unique view into Donald Trump and one that is, I think, quite cogent, uh, particularly as Trump settles into his second year in office. Uh, It seems that he is beginning to get into more of the spectacle and the pageantry like that we saw. Oh, he's just beginning now (laughs) to do that? Well, you know, the the thing that is kind of fascinating about this is that the campaign was all about that, right? The campaign was all about the Mm -hmm. spectacle. Uh, And now it seemed to get like a little bogged down in the first year of the administration. Uh, You know, like... if you can talk about health care or you can feud with NFL
4: players like who are kneeling during this, the, the national anthem, it's an easy choice for Trump, but he still had to talk about health care. I think you're looking at 2017 with nostalgic glasses on right now. <laughs> the there was going. not one week where he didn't t- t- put his toes into every single type of water. I mean, even the transition, he had Kanye West at the Trump Tower just because. And Steve Harvey. and And, well, and, and the guy with the hat from Milwaukee, <laughs> David Clark. <laughs> Listen, David Clark wears lots of badges and they're all made up. They're fantastic. He's a flamboyant man. I love him. And when I say I love him, I mean I'm very, very afraid of him. Anyways, um, this is he, a Milwaukee County Sheriff, former Milwaukee County Sheriff. He's David never Clark. not yeah. done this. right? If any, The only reason why we know about it is because the social media platform Twitter exists. It's not like he wasn't like this in the 90s or the 80s. He just didn't have a connection to people. But now he does, for better or worse. Donald Trump didn't really want to be president in the eighties. Donald Trump wanted to own an NFL team, and then when that didn't happen, he owned a USFL team, and then tried to take the NFL down by changing the schedule. Number one, that's a fact. Number two, George W. Bush wanted to be Major League Baseball commissioner. That was his dream job. But Bud Selig didn't let that happen. If the guy that ran the again bre- Milwaukee exactly, if the guy that ran the <laughs> Brewers was cool with it, would we have had Bush too? I don't know. Ronald Reagan's dream wasn't to become president. Ronald Reagan's dream was to become an A-list actor, and when that didn't work, he became a pawn of McCarthyism and was a B-list actor and then governor and then president. It's not like we've had people that have always wanted to be president in the office. This is nothing new. It's just that we're noticing it, and we think it's different.
3: There were times that I felt it really worked. One of my favorite podcasts was one we did with Jason Reitman, Matt Bai, and Jay Carson about their movie, The Front Runner about Gary Hart's 1988 run for the presidency and how it was felled by a sex scandal. It was a good entertainment, well acted, well thought out, and the combination of a former high-level congressional staffer, Carson, political writer, By, and a compelling filmmaker, Reitman, produced just a great story. The idea that a sexual indiscretion could end a politician's career in 2018 is almost a quaint idea (laughs) these times. (laughs) And so making a movie about a sexual indiscretion that ended the presidential ambitions of Gary Hart, it seems like it's longer than it's 31 years ago when that happened in May 1987. But the story is a little bit more complicated than just simple morality and politics and sex. And to discuss the new movie, The Front Runner, which details the uh, story of Gary Hart and that sort of coffee cup presidential campaign in May 1987, are two of the writers of the movie, Matt By and Jay Carson, and we're going to discuss their movie. I'll give you the thumbnail version of the, the Hart story. Uh, in
4: 1987, Gary Hart was, this is the beginning of 87 going to the 88 cycle, he was uh, the presumed front runner for the Democratic nomination
5: uh, he announces for president, and
3: a couple weeks after the announcement, but it takes about five days, he's completely consumed and driven not just from the presidential race, but from public life by uh, uh, scandalous galleons of a much younger woman who was not his wife. Uh, and, uh, you know, it, it, is, uh, it, it, it is a watershed moment, you know, uh, a moment of change in American politics, because before that, uh, no presidential candidate has been subjected uh, to that kind of scrutiny in their private lives.
1: you know, that was a crazy few year period that I happened to, uh, luck into, I guess. Um, I loved working there and I loved working for him, but, um, and I still, you know, look at the Capitol and think, my, my God, I had an office in there. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'll, you know, for the rest of my life, I'll probably drive my kids by and, and annoy the hell out of them by saying like, that was daddy's, that was daddy's window up there. (laughs) Um, it was a crazy time. It was anthrax. It was nine eleven. There was all of the the legislation we pushed through after nine eleven. Bush v. Gore. It was all, all all kind of crazy stuff. But there was also a nastiness of politics that was that was increasing. And nasty is almost a quaint word compared to what we're dealing with now. But you could see the seeds of the politics that we're dealing with now. In the way we started dealing with each other or, or, or increasingly dealt with each other during that period. And every month, month over month, got worse than the got worse than the last. Although I'm sure that anyone now would would, you know, pay to be taken in a time machine back to then and what we thought was nasty.
3: Then there was Werner Herzog, arguably the most iconoclastic person I've ever met. We talked about his documentary, Meeting Gorbachev, about meeting the former Soviet Union premier, Mikhail Gorbachev. Uh, sometimes the connections I tried to make between politics and Russian culture, well, they just didn't really go over very well with Herzog. Gorbachev does come across as a romantic. I mean, he's certainly a successful politician and a pragmatist on so many levels, but he's romantic.
6: No, 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 no. Put all my nose into the text. Every word I say, no, he's not a romantic. He's a man of uh, extreme pragmatism, uh, of deep insights in uh, the heart of men, in deep insights into political powers, of deep insights about what is doable in terms of political events. So he's not a romantic soul that is floating around and trying to achieve something. If if you mean to say that, you are wrong. And you are wrong, put that in capital
0: letters. <laughs> uh,
3: I guess, you know, what did I expect from the man whom millions know as the client in The Mandalorian, somebody who paid to kidnap Baby Yoda? I know, I know, Baby Yoda is not the real name. It's Grogu. old habits, it, and, you know, the Baby Yoda thing's just going to stick for a while. Shortly after that podcast, one of the publicity folks who helped set up the Herzog interview called me, apparently concerned about my safety. <laughs> Did you anger him? That can be dangerous, she said. I know, I've seen a lot of his movies, and anyone who is friends with Klaus Kinski is someone you give a wide berth to. I am still here, though. So. That was fun. Those were some of the fun parts. There were a lot more, but we only have so much time uh, for these podcasts. And and then there was kind of, I don't know, just a turn. Something happened. Not long after that, politics went from being a sometimes frustrating thing that we like to catalog with some comedy and turn over and look to something that became a little more dangerous and deadly. COVID-19 crept up on us in early 2020 And when the time called for political leaders to do hard things and protect us, they failed. We packed up our offices and we learned to podcast from home. People weighed how much risk to put themselves and their loved ones in to cover the news. The question of how to keep people safe, whether through social distancing or wearing a mask, became partisan flashpoints. Members of Congress got sick. The president got sick. Congress figured out ways to vote and debate while the pandemic raged. We really didn't know what to do. We just knew that we had to do something. And so we talked to people uh, about this. And then amid all this carnage, a long simmering debate over racial justice burst into the open after George Floyd was murdered at the hands of a Minneapolis police officer. My colleague at the time, Clyde McGrady, who's now at the Washington Post, conducted a series of interviews with black members of Congress, and he asked them about their own run-ins with the police. It was an important part of the conversation and a contribution to the nation's self-examination. Representative Andre Carson, for instance, who's a Democrat from Indiana, is a former law enforcement officer himself. That brought an extra layer to our discussion uh, with him.
2: I was, you know, uh, at a mosque and another gentleman who was with me, we had an exchange with law enforcement, which wasn't unusual about um, kind of just them driving around looking at us. And then the exchange escalated, and the law enforcement, the, the particular officer, was like, get over here, you in. I'm like, this was the same year as Rodney King. So the nation had witnessed Rodney King, and for those of us who were used to being stopped randomly and harassed randomly, we're used to it. But to have Rodney King call and tape was a special moment. And to be called out of my name then, I said, whoa. It was I mean, I, I was only seventeen, so it was a mixture of fear and you know, not not allowing myself to be disrespected anymore in that moment. And so when I was when I was handcuffed, I was facing the charge of battery on a police officer resisting arrest and fleeing. And those charges were dropped. Obviously they were and at the time, um, there was a way you could pull up the police report. It's obviously sealed now because I was a juvenile and the laws have changed in Indiana. But even in the police report, the officer, the arresting officer talks about he made note of my manners, how I was courteous. And even considering my pleasantries that he even noted in his police report, I was still arrested and called out of my name.
3: Cedric Richmond, a Louisiana Democrat. He had a story about his run in where he described himself as basically being kind of lucky. That resonates a lot, especially when you consider he's now a senior White House advisor to President Joe Biden.
0: One of the incidents I remember most clearly was being stopped by an African-American. I was on St. Charles Avenue in a particularly white neighborhood, uh, very upscale. I mean, it is Ab in New Orleans. I forgot why he pulled me over, but was an African-American cop, I was polite. And... He asked me for my license, and I couldn't find it. It was my freshman year in college. I was home for break driving my mother's car. And then, you know, he went back, ran my name and all of that. And then he came back to the car and said, look, I see the Morehouse car on the back of your car. Do you go to Morehouse? I said, I do. He said, well, Dr. King once said that the man can't ride the back if your back's not bent. And he said, you do realize right now that I could ride you back if I wanted to because you don't have your license. But I'd rather make this a teachable moment. He told me to go home and said if I was coming back out or going anywhere else, I needed to have make sure I had my license on me. And so that was something I never forgot.
3: So things got real serious and we kept plugging away. Whether it was the horror of the pandemic, the trauma and significance of the protests, And the toxic nature of the 2020 campaign, somewhere along the way, politics became our culture. Trump may have given it a WWE sized push, but he was ably assisted by those eager to make spectacles out of the political system and themselves at the expense of other things that politics is supposed to do, like solve problems that individuals cannot. It wasn't just the theater of politics, politics became theater. The January 6th insurrection at the Capitol was the culmination of a president and his allies whipping up their audiences into a frenzy with a stew of lies about the election being stolen. For the first time since the British burned the Capitol during the War of 1812, the Capitol was breached and the rioters did it all on social media. That part of it, the gleeful recording and posting on social media of the violent intimidation and vandalism of the democratic process and the seat of government, was the ultimate expression of political violence as entertainment? John Heilman and Jennifer Palmieri, co-hosts of the Showtime political documentary series *The Circus*, worried that such spectacles were likely not over. But how do how do you think how how are we going to do this without going nuts? <laughs>
6: I don't know. If, I don't know if, I, we don't we don't get a choice about that, right? Nobody asks our nobody nobody asks for our, our permission to make things crazy. Um, I feel like uh,
3: I, I'm not meaning to turn this into group therapy, but I just I'm curious what what your coping mechanisms all are. I might. Try I mean, to I don't know them, that this is know. a
6: coping mechanism. It's just I'm just terrified, Jason. Like I don't think. I'm not sure that we made it through the worst. I feel like we got a second chance is what I feel like democracy, you know, and I'm trying, I'm not trying to be partisan here. I'm talking about democracy with a little D, but I feel like democracy got a second chance when I saw the inauguration. And and, um, I was glad that Pence was on that stage because it was a reminder that as comforting as it was to see George W. Bush and Barack Obama and Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton and everyone being friendly and um not partisan, that the Trump presidency did happen. You know, Pence was there to sort of memorialize that. Um and I feel like we got a second chance. And what really worries me is what you see happening at state Republican party levels, right? Like, you know, Liz Cheney got censured by, by her, uh, party, the Senate majority leader in Michigan, who's a very conservative guy that's gone to great lengths to stop Gretchen Whitmer from, um, uh, from some of the COVID restrictions that she's tried to do as now denying, um, that, uh, that there was Trump people actually at the Capitol. He's, He's saying that it was rigged, uh, because he is uh, in danger of being censured by a local Republican Party for not being tough enough on Gretchen Whitmer. There are, from Georgia to Arizona to Texas, state capitals all over the country are considering more legislation to make it harder for people to vote. Um, in Georgia, which you know had the huge uh, mail-in and early vote, they're trying to get the Republicans there are trying to get rid of that now in this in this legislative session. And so I feel like. In terms of democracy surviving and not becoming a country where the minority can rule, as hundred you know, hundred plus uh, Republican members of Congress voted to overturn the certification of the Electoral College. You know, I feel like that's the next big fight, and you know, I feel um, you know we have a, a my crew. We, we say WAPA, what a time to be alive um, uh, about this time, but it still feels like a privilege to be able to be you know, part of trying to understand it, uh, but we don't get a choice about how hard it is. It's scary.
3: I'm not naive. Politics has always been a contact sport, and it will continue to be. Just ask Liz Cheney, the conservative Republican from Wyoming and daughter of former Vice President Dick Cheney. She was just deposed from her position as the number three leader among House Republicans for refusing to kowtow to Trump about his lies about the 2020 election being fraudulent. It wasn't, according to Trump's own Justice Department and cybersecurity officials. She continued to hold him accountable for the attack on the Capitol and the Democratic process on January 6th, and she suffered the consequences. Cheney was knifed by her own party leaders who initially acknowledged reality about Trump's role in the attack, but then returned to the behavior they were more familiar with, out-and-out out fealty and sycophancy to the former president.
7: I uh, am absolutely committed uh, that we must go forward uh, based on truth. We cannot both uh, embrace the big lie and embrace the Constitution. And going forward, uh, the nation needs it. The nation needs a strong Republican Party. Uh, the nation needs a party that uh, that is based upon fundamental principles of conservatism. And I am committed and dedicated to ensuring uh, that that's how this party goes forward. And I plan to lead the fight to do that.
3: Cheney will likely be replaced by Elise Stefanik, a one-time acolyte of former Speaker Paul Ryan and a classic upstate New York moderate who got real popular with the GOP base once she started defending Trump reflexively. Cheney voted a lot more for Trump's policies, but she refused to side with him against the Constitution and the truth. Stefanik voted against Trump's policies more than almost any other Republican in Congress, including his signature domestic achievement, the 2017 tax cuts. But that didn't matter. She yelled fake news and voting fraud and Democrats are socialists enough to get her in good with the president and his supporters.
7: President Trump has fought tirelessly to deliver results for all Americans, despite the Democrats' baseless and illegal impeachment sham and the media's endless obsession with it.
3: But here is hoping that the theater won't always double as the reality and that the political theater won't turn as bloody and as dangerous as it did these last few months. Seeing Representative Deb Holland become the first Native American to become a cabinet secretary for the Interior Department, no less, is one of those signs that politics can serve to right previous historic genocidal wrongs. Carla Fredericks talked to us about the significance of Holland's appointment. Does this open up, you know, the process, you think, for, for other um, Native Americans to see, you know, like, uh, see Holland as a as a role model and Sharice Davids, her, her colleague uh, from Kansas who was elected also in 2018. I, I feel like that the lack of seeing people, somebody in a position, you know, is, is always, it's always about representation. And she seems to take that very seriously. Um, Do you think that this is going to increase some, you know, like the, you know, political activity or political interest in participating in electoral politics with, with the native people?
5: Yes. I think that there's interest in the process. And I do think that the people in these very public leadership positions um, are important for Native Americans throughout the country and Indigenous peoples throughout the world to look to, to see the possibility of that. I also think there's a conversation happening about um, not confusing Indigenous representation with Indigenous leadership. And, and I think that's happening across communities of color. So there's this uptick that's in interest uh, in DEI and you know, having inclusion and equity but I think that what com- communities of color are sort of a couple steps ahead of the current conversation that's happening um, more broadly, and really thinking about um, about self determination in a different way, um, and trying to really have the ability to make decisions on issues that deeply impact their communities.
3: You've probably picked up on the fact that I really like movies. Among the filmmakers I've been privileged to talk to about their projects over the years is Dawn Porter. First for a Netflix series she did on Bobby Kennedy and his presidential run in 1968. And just last year for her movie, John Lewis, Good Trouble, about the civil rights icon and Democratic congressman who died last year. Maybe these things go in waves. John Lewis certainly never quit striving for the greater good, and he did it without a trace of nastiness, but with grace, humor, humor and humility. He was certainly aware of the power of peaceful protest and of politics and the effectiveness of yes, political theater.
7: I I you know, you see the part in the film where we sit him down with footage and have him like watch it and respond to it. John Lewis has been asked every question about his life multiple times. And so he kind of has a you know way of, of describing those moments. And I wanted to kind of interrupt that compulsion and and you know see if we could get some other details. So we were at Brian Stevenson's remarkable civil rights museum in um, Alabama. And John Lewis was watching. So we were filming. We weren't filming in the museum, but we were filming that weekend.
3: Is is this the one that's about halfway between Selma and Montgomery? Okay, I've I've been there. It's chilling. It's really chilling.
7: It is a remarkable place and having that history put together so beautifully that way. Watching John Lewis watch himself, Mm -hmm. he turned to, there was a teenager next to him. And he said, I can't believe that's me. And then he started telling a story that I'd never heard before. And I thought, oh, maybe we need to really bring him back. So we rented the arena stage in DC and uh, constructed three large screens around him. And Rich, the archivist and Jessica, the editor, and I put together these like mini films and just played them for him and had him tell me the story of those moments. So you know, that was a way to like get him to say, you know, to really, he was kind of living in it and have him respond. Um, But that was inspired by that moment in Brian Stevenson's museum.
3: If you've been listening since episode one, or if you've just tuned in, if you're a member of the CQ Roll Call Newsroom, and especially the production team that makes this podcast possible, if you're one of the guests that has graciously come to talk to us if you're just a political nerd like myself who likes good conversation thank you thank you for listening